1: Hey, I'm Jeff Cohen. Everything you hear on WNPR, from local news and talk shows to the national programs you love, is made possible because of listener support. You make it happen. You give the radio its signal, the computer its stream, the smartphone its podcast. You make it so we can reach you wherever you are. We love that you listen, but we also need your dollars. Go to WNPR.org and click on Donate in the upper
0: right-hand corner. Thanks for helping out. Time to get up, Mr. President.
2: Turn on the TV, you fool. You know I can't abide the silence of my own mind.
0: Do you want Fox and Friends or SpongeBob? Which
2: is the one with the dim-witted pink guy.
0: That could be Patrick the Starfish or Brian Kilmeade, so you're gonna have to get more specific.
2: You know, the show that promotes a happy world of tolerance and diversity with tiny little lessons about honesty and generosity waiting for us behind every coral reef?
0: Yes, Mr. President. Well,
2: that's the one I don't want to watch.
0: Yes, Mr. President. I've been asked by the Pentagon to remind you to stop saying we have a flotilla steaming towards North Korea.
2: Right, because it's not a steaming flotilla, it's bigger, it's an armada, it's a maxi fleet of galactic destroyers. A steaming flotilla is what I'm going to make in the bathroom right after I'm done talking to you.
0: Also, Mr. President, whatever you want to call our ships, they're actually steaming towards Australia.
2: It was on TV that we were steaming toward Korea. Fake news. Fake news!
0: Technically, they were just repeating what we told them for two days.
2: Anyway, why are we attacking Australia? That's not the plan. The plan is for me and my family to go live in Australia if this continent becomes you know, becomes... An
0: apocalyptic wasteland after a poorly thought out multilateral missile exchange with other nuclear superpowers? I
2: thought we agreed to use words like landscaping problems. Anyway, we need Australia to stay viable. I told Eric he could have his own kangaroo, but he has to take care of it. Maybe
0: the best thing to do is to avoid a nuclear exchange.
2: It's not up to me. That North Korean madman has been a problem for Clinton, Bush, and Obama, too.
0: Actually, that madman died in 2011. This is his son.
2: Well... They shouldn't have such similar names. Imagine if I had a son named Donald Trump Jr.
0: You do, sir.
2: Fake news!
0: No, really. Well,
2: I can see whose side you're on. Clear out! I need to draft an executive order demanding that Sonia stop trashing Luann and Bethany.
0: We've discussed this before, Mr. President. Even though it's called reality television, Real Housewives of New York, it's not something that a president should be... Get
2: out! The rest of you listen to this. I'm going to be busy for a while. Did he leave me the sports section? I need the sports section to... Make my executive order. Meanwhile, here's the guy who spent all day Sunday talking about the freedom election, Colin McEnroe.
1: Yeah, actually, I wasn't sure whether we still have to do that or not. You know, we weren't supposed to say French fries for a while. Uh, so, yes, there was there was a freedom election yesterday. When, and we will be talking about it later in the show, about the outcome of the uh Uh, the freedom election. But right now we're going to talk about the aforementioned president of the United States. Uh, Welcome to our scramble. Uh, So much to say. I do have to say some of that uh, intro that you just heard was based on a remarkable article in The Washington Post today that talks about sort of the way in which television news drives Donald Trump's thinking. Not that that's a big surprise, but I mean, it, it even includes the ideas that like now foreign diplomats tell their the leaders of their country if you're coming to the united states to meet with the president get on tv first because that's where he'll find out about you basically I don't know that boggled my mind. I didn't think my mind could still be boggled at this point, but it apparently can. Uh, all right, so we're very excited to have back with us Eric Levitz, a journalist and comedy writer. He writes for the—I don't even know how anybody tells the difference anymore. But anyway, he writes for, the New, York, uh, for New York Magazine's Daily Intelligencer, uh, and he is associate editor there. Um, Eric Levitz, welcome back to our show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So much is happening this week. Uh, I guess we have to begin with uh, the notion of the first 100 days— uh, which Donald Trump, in an interview on Friday with Associated Press, said is a really stupid, artificial way to look at things. Uh, it's it's an arbitrary deadline. Uh, there's only pro- one problem with that, Eric Levitz, as you can tell us, which is that it's kind of his deadline, right?
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's been, you know, a historic milestone that people have uh, liked to point to, to assess uh, a president's success for a long time, because generally speaking, there's a, usually a honeymoon period where the Midterms are a little while away, so you have, you know, sort of your party. It's a ideal time for your party to fall in line, be loyal, take votes on the agenda without worrying quite as much about, you know, how it's going to play out two years from now. Um, but Trump himself, also, uh, you know, with his love of hyperbole and talking up, you know, just how effective uh, he is and how much of a uh, all action, you know, not just talk politician he is, uh, promised to do and astounding array of things by his 100th day, um, including, of course, uh, repealing and replacing uh, the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare. Um, And and he has not uh, done that, nor passed any major legislation of any kind.
1: No, there's, uh, and it's in in one of your pieces in New York Magazine, there's uh, 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 an image of this list of things that he referred to as the contract with the American voter. You know, and there's like 10 things on the list. And he hasn't done any of them. Uh, I mean, it, it's not that he hasn't done some of them. He hasn't done any of them. And and for somebody like him, because so much of that message was, as you say, Eric, a message of sweeping aside impediments and blasting through obstacles that might have stopped a lesser man and and ignoring and cutting through all of the conventions of Washington and draining the swamp and all. So, and that was all about just sort of Bursting through like Superman, going through a brick wall, uh, and and having great success on the other side. So it is. I I I guess he doesn't have much choice now but to suggest that this whole hundred day thing was kind of a stupid thing to begin with, and hope nobody remembers that it was kind of a stupid thing that he tied himself to.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, there is this dissonance where when he was running, uh, the line was that a a businessman, someone who has you know, who has been disciplined by the the rigors of the the private market, the, the private sector, um, would be able to come into Washington and just get things done way quicker than these, you know, upset bureaucrats that have been running our swamp. Um, but but now actually the line is, I think in Associated Press interview last night, you know, he sort of suggested that, you know, look, what do you expect? Like I, I need to get my bearings on healthcare. I'm a businessman. Like I, I didn't know how this stuff works. I'm, I'm learning it, but but I'm going to get it done where uh, being a businessman has gone from a reason why he would move uh, faster than other politicians to a reason why, you know, you got to kind of cut him slack.
1: Right. And I think the other one thing he benefits from, correct me if I'm wrong about this, one thing he benefits from is a, a, a less than complete incentive for either party to really call him on the carpet about this. I mean, the D- Democrats they don't want to make too much fun of him for not accomplishing these goals because some of these goals are goals that they're very happy he did not accomplish it doesn't really make any sense to you know to say well you know you haven't gotten any of your your tax reforms through or you haven't re- repealed and replaced Obamacare. You know, I mean, if you run down, I'm looking at that list of stuff. There are a few things that maybe they could at least nominally get behind. But for the most part, they're not going to flog him about not accomplishing a whole bunch of stuff that they were opposed to in the first place. And for the Republicans, there's a disincentive because they're sort of yoked to him anyway, to whatever extent Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell can be said to, you know, not necessarily know how to get some of this stuff through uh, a somewhat divided Congress they're not going to kick him about this stuff either. So maybe one way Donald Trump benefits is that he, you know, he's lucky enough not to have really an opposition party at the moment.
3: Yeah, well, I will say that Democrats are actually, um, they have a series of events uh, scheduled around the 100th day to highlight his broken promises. I think putting more emphasis sort of on some of his more populous promises when he was running for president. Like, you know, he did say that he would cover everybody uh, with his health care plan. He did say that he would, Negotiate with pharmaceutical companies over the price of drugs and, and these other things that Democrats can have some sympathy for. And, and then there was infrastructure, some noises about paid family leave. But uh, Democrats have also actually kind of uh, tried to hold them accountable for promises that they obviously wouldn't want them to keep. There's been a lot of Democratic talk about, you know, uh, hey, Mexico was supposed to pay for the wall. Why isn't Mexico paying for the wall as if the Democratic Party thinks that it is? a good or worthwhile policy to coerce our southern neighbor into paying for a monument to American xenophobia. Um, but uh, So there is a little bit of bad faith posturing from Democrats on on that. As for the Republicans, yeah, the Republicans are in a really strange place because we're at this time of of the peak polarization where Donald Trump is a very unpopular president, uh, but he's a popular Republican president. He's a popular with the Republican uh, voting base his numbers with the Republican voting base are what a, a normal president would have at this point, um, you know, sort of in, in their term. It's around like 88, 90%, even though he's at 42% uh, with the rest of the country. And that puts these Congress members, you know, I think in a, a really challenging place because to get reelected, you're going to need to mobilize your base, which is broadly uh, pro-Trump, but then also, you know, peel off enough swing independent voters to, uh, as well. And, and generally speaking, uh, they have a much dimmer view of the president.
1: Right. And I'm also wondering I mean, there's some challenges ahead. One of them is going to come up this week in the form of a, uh, either they fund the government operations or the government shuts down. And the other one is a little bit more in the offing because there's going to be some time for a study on, on tax reform. But, you know, they've been through this, the spectacle in, in which at the end of the, the last health care debate, um, uh, and that does imply that there might be another health. It wasn't the, apparently the final healthcare debate. It was the most recent healthcare debate. But at the end of that, Paul Ryan, you know, in a show of sort of disarming uh, honesty, said, "Well, you know, really, we've mostly like opposing a lot of stuff for eight years, and we're not that good yet at passing things. You know, this we don't really have those that the skill set that we need." Well, you can say that once. If you're a speaker, you can't say it a lot more times than that. You probably can't even say it twice. So as they look down the road, first of all, to a possible government shutdown at the end of this week, and then, you know, if they look a little further down the road to the whole question of tax re- reform, which is, you know, supposedly the next big wave, it's like they have to eke out some successes, right? I mean, they can't keep going before the cameras and saying, well, we're just not, you know, <laughs> we're not good at constructive stuff. We, we got out of practice.
3: Yeah, and it is this weird place that they're in with. I think that they'll be on firmer ground with tax reform, but there is this dissonance with health care where there's a lot of anxiety about, you know, uh, we need to show legislative success and effectiveness um, and deliver. Well, at the same time, uh, if they actually delivered the health care plan that they had written, um, you know, vulnerable moderate Republicans are terrified of that bill. Um, and, you know, the Republican donor class might be eager for that bill to pass because it included you know, massive tax cuts for uh, millionaire investors that were built into Obamacare. But for your average uh, Republican representative and, and median Republican swing voters, uh, you know, there's no interest in passing regressive health care legislation that finances tax cuts for the rich by cutting medical benefits to the middle class and poor. Um, so the, there's, they're in a bind with that one where there really is no win. Um with tax reform, you know, actual tax reform where you actually uh, revenue neutral, like shift the burdens within the tax code from one set of businesses to another, from one tax bracket to another, that's difficult stuff. There's a lot of interest groups there, and you need to be like a really skilled, uh, you, know, you, have a, you have to have a skilled legislative quarterback, and you have to have like a party that really knows what it's doing to execute that. But... You don't need to be very skilled to just do an unfunded tax cut. Um, That's what Bush did, um, you know, all those years ago. Was a a, you know you can pass through reconciliation in the Senate with a simple majority vote uh, a temporary tax cut, um, a a 10-year you know expiration date. uh, Put a 10-year expiration date on a tax cut for the rich. That's something that Bush did. That's something that Trump could probably do once uh, he realizes that these other things are too difficult and Maybe that'll you
1: know help them somewhat. Um, I have so many questions about all of these, but let's let's go back to healthcare for a second because uh, there is this kind of notion that that there's kind of a zombie Trump care that there might be some attempt to revive it, and as you just suggested, for a lot of reasons, you know. It is probably the most unpopular idea anywhere on the legislative menu uh, in America right now. The, the, uh, the AHCA was really kind of detested by Americans, had very minimal poll support. It seems to me that part of the problem here, and it doesn't really get talked about all that much, is that there isn't really a Republican fix for what we could all agree are some of the problems with the original ACA. In other words, I mean, I think most of us would agree, if you look at it closely, that the premiums are too high, you know, in the, the sort of general independent insurance markets, the deductibles are too high too, that it hasn't really, it, it's been a great targeted form of relief for certain lower income groups. But for some of the other people that it was supposed to help, especially maybe people who are, are self-employed and stuff like that, the numbers don't really work that well. They're very high. The problem, with, it, of course, is that this is essentially a Republican plan to begin with. The thing that people object to the most about it, uh, it the, the the mandate, uh, is came from out of the Heritage Foundation. It was a way of keeping private insurers in this whole proposal. And then the private insurers haven't necessarily held their ground about all this stuff. Um, but I mean, the only way to get the the premiums down or the deductibles down that I can see is a much more capital D democratic fix, which is to have something like a public option that competes with the private markets. I mean, I don't. I, there, there isn't. You know, Trump during the campaign kept saying you're going to have beautiful health care, you know, and it's going to be affordable and it's going to cover everything and it's going to cover everybody. Well, there isn't any way to do that using this system. Am I missing something here, Eric?
3: No, I mean I think that the the big problem that Republicans have on health care is that. Their goals, their publicly stated goals uh, for what they want to change about the American health care system, and their actual ones are very different. Um, They're different for the reason that the American people do not share their goals. So their objection to Obamacare officially, especially uh, since Trump launched his campaign in recent months, is that uh, deductibles are too high, premiums are too high, doesn't even cover everybody, you have not enough choices. Um, the, the patient is not empowered enough. These are their official complaints about the law. Um, but, but the actual reasons why they oppose the law are, uh, you know, first and foremost, it redistributed resources uh, from the rich uh, to the poor, um, you know, and that is something that they have. Many of them have like a moral, they're, they're Anne and they have like a moral opposition to like the, the wealth generated by the job creators is theirs and taxation is theft, um, you know, so that they have that commitment. And then also it was passed and signed by an African-American Democratic president. So, of course, it has to be bad. Mm -hmm. So these are the two reasons why they're against it. Um, And, you know, they were able to really milk that last part about the black president to get their base really riled up about it. Um, But but now that they're actually in power, uh, the discrepancy between what they say is the problem with health care and what their actual priorities as a party are uh, have created this huge problem for them because all of their plans make the problems with Obamacare that they've been complaining about worse, as did their actual position on health care is that deductibles are too low, um, you know, and that we need to have higher deductibles so that people really think more about uh, how much their health care costs and, and use health care less to get healthcare, aggregate health care costs down. Um, they have an immensely unpopular vision that is unpopular even with their own base. There was recent polling that showed that self-identified Tea Party Republicans believe that the government should spend more money on Medicaid than it currently does. Hmm. their plan would have cut eight hundred eighty billion from Medicaid within the next ten years.
1: You know, Eric, we've only got a few minutes left and uh, you know, you've uh, in your writing very well sketched out, particularly around the health care issue, why the Republicans have a part a problem in the sense that, you know, they've got two wings of the party. One of them thinks that, uh, you know, Obamacare is not punitive enough and the other part thinks that the AHCa is too punitive. The Democrats have a little bit of the same problem and it's beginning to surface a, l- a little bit. Like as we ask the question, what kind of race do they run as an opposition party? In 2018, uh, Tom Perez and Bernie Sanders went on the road together. And right away, it seemed as though they have a little bit of a mirror problem, don't they? Um, you
3: know, they have they have their own tensions, and I think that it's uh, ultimately it's less of an issue, I think, in opposition than it is, uh, you know, when you're in power and actually have to make these decisions. But but no question, there are tensions within this party. Um, there's a some of it is right now to their benefit. There's a flood of. Uh, Candidates, uh, early recruitment for the Democrats, uh, right now they have 58% more declared candidates for House races in 2018 than they did at this point um, in the, the 2014 cycle. Um, and a lot of those people are uh, self-identified sort of Bernie crats who want to challenge um, primary, you know, uh, sitting Democrats uh, or, or else uh, just push their local parties to the left. Um you know, so that is on the one hand, you know, maybe concern because there's divisiveness there, but on the other hand, it's drawing more candidates into the the field, and, and ultimately, at this point, you know, as a political party, you want to have uh, as many players vying for contention as possible. Um, but uh, yeah, there is this tension. I mean, right now, the consensus among the Democratic uh, establishment is that the best route to a House majority runs through these suburban uh, districts that flipped uh, from Romney to Clinton, or at least moved in that direction. There are all these sunbelt suburbs where highly educated white voters um, and, you know, uh, slightly higher than average uh, minority voters um, make up these districts, and they were repulsed by Trump. Um, and so, you know, the one in Georgia last week that uh, John Ossoff, uh, you know, nearly came within two points of the securing a victory and uh, elected Tom Price, uh, the Republican congressman turned health secretary by, like, 20 points, uh, but, but came within two points of, of giving its vote to Hillary Clinton. So their idea is that we can convert these, these Romney voters um, in, into, you know, uh, democratic voters going forward, um, which would seem to entail emphasizing the party's commitment to social liberalism and really not moving less too much on economics, because you don't want these people to start worrying about how much you're going to tax them if you're trying to bring them to the party, or at least that's a left concern with the strategy. Um, right, is that uh, if we view the future of the Democratic Party running through these suburbs um, and converting these you know, the, what were country club Republicans, that's going to limit the ability of the party to move in Sanders' direction on policy.
1: Right. Eric, um, Eric I'm going to have to stop yeah. you right there because we're just flat out out of time. Eric Levitz, great to talk to you, associate editor of the New York Magazine's Daily Intelli- Intelligencer. Some people are coming to talk to you now. They're going to talk to you about what kind of radio you like and whether you'll support it or not. If you support it right now, this show, which I hope you love, will kind of get credit, so do that. And we're back. Uh, We're back and we're going to talk about uh, yesterday's French election. We're going to talk about it with people who uh, are over there right now and therefore nearing their cocktail and or dinner hours. We're very grateful for them, uh, for their time. Uh, Joining us right now is Roger Cohen, op-ed columnist for the International New York Times, writes about international affairs and diplomacy, but you're all public radio listeners. You already know exactly who he is. You read him. Uh, Jean-Marie Potier, uh, editor at large for Slate uh, in France, that's uh, slate.fr. also with us, and we'll talk a little bit about what happened yesterday, what's going to happen over the next two weeks, too. Um, so first of all, welcome to this conversation, and Jean-Marie Potier, I, w- I want to begin by asking you to define a couple of uh, words that may not have precise uh, American English equivalents, but seem to be surface, sur- surfacing a lot in describing the mood in France. And The first one is degagiste, dégag- I hope I'm saying
4: that remotely closely. Um, Explain what that means. Hello. Hi. Uh, Thank you for inviting me. Um, Degagism is um, the fact that you want to fire the incumbents. Mm-hmm. For example, and um, many uh, leaders in France have been fired since one year. Most of all, are, um, our actual president, François Hollande, who, uh, who is not running during this uh, presidential election, but also a former president, Nicolas Sarkozy, mm-hmm. who tried to come back uh, during the um, the primary of the right of the conservatives uh, in uh, last autumn and was uh, who lost against uh, François Fillon. And Francois Fillon himself lost yesterday. So, well, that is the Gagisme.
1: Another word that might not have been that familiar, and I don't know how relevant this word is after yesterday, is uh, insoumis or insoumise. Uh, That was more uh, descriptive of the, uh, the far left uprising. But explain what that means in the context of the political scene there.
4: Oh, uh, insoumis! So it's uh, yes, you're right. Um, it's the new party on the far left, on the radical left, uh, the party of uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who got uh, 20% of uh, of the votes yesterday. And in fact, insoumis it means that you don't want to obey to the rules of uh, the, the, of the power of um, national power or of European power. For example, the AnSUI, the they do not want to obey to uh, the European Union rules. They were, for example, the, the, the financial austerity imposed by Brussels.
1: I'm going to turn to Roger Cohen here for a second. You know, As we talk about those two words, is there a difference between what we're seeing in France and what we saw in the United States and maybe what we saw in Britain uh, through Brexit, just in the sense that, I mean, in the United States, uh, as unconventional as the election was, there was a Republican and there was a Democrat and they ran against each other and one of them won. This seems more like a sweeping aside of established political norms and and that no matter what the outcome was yesterday and no matter what the outcome is two weeks from now, you're going to be looking at something that isn't all that familiar, at least in terms of political label. Roger, does it go beyond the label?
5: Well, Colin, I think uh, President Donald Trump hijacked the Republican Party uh, for his ends uh, during the election. So uh, I think you did see also in the United States a uh, strong reaction against the mainstream parties. And certainly in France, um, the fifth republic since 1958 uh, has alternated between the center left and, and the center right, and uh, essentially between the socialists and the center right have had various names, uh, most recently the Republicans. So, that has been um, swept aside, it's been dégagé, and um, in its place you have uh, Marine Le Pen um, of the far-right National Front, uh, a racist party, and um, then you have this new movement, a uh, centrist movement of um, the great French political upstart Emmanuel Macron, aged 39. Um, and. Uh, he calls himself a progressive. Um, he worked closely with uh, President Francois Hollande, a socialist. So he's all the kind of center left. But in order to prosper politically, he had to create a new movement. There is simply uh, a lot of anger against the establishment, against elites, um, against impunity. Uh, and against experts um, saying what should be done. And that, I think, is something we've seen now in Britain, in France, and in the United States.
1: So, Jean-Marie, I I would assume that this would be a difficult um, candidacy to predict. In other words, Macron is himself... Kind of a neophyte. I mean, maybe I'm exaggerating that, but somebody pretty new to French politics, his party is something that's new to French politics. So is there a way to predict? I mean, one of the things that has to happen now is a sorting out of yesterday's results, uh, a winnowing down of candidates, and, and a lot of those votes and support have to go to one of the two candidates. How easy is it to predict who's going to flock to the standard of Macron?
4: you're not exaggerating at all because uh, it was impossible to predict the rise of Macron. Uh, Three years ago or five years ago, almost no one knew him uh, outside the political circles in in Paris. And uh, speaking of the runoff, I think it's not so hard to predict what will happen because uh, Macron is a former socialist, in fact, a former member of the Socialist Party, even if it was during a, a short time. So many socialist voters Well, there are not so much left today, because only 6% of the people voted for the socialist candidate. But many socialist voters uh, will vote for Macron. Um, uh, A large part of the insumi voters, the radical left voters will also vote for Macron. And uh, also a large part, I think, um, many, maybe 50% of the conservative voters. So, in fact, um, it would be, uh, I think, a huge disappointment for Macron if he didn't, did not reach 60% of the vote um, in the runoff. It should be far less close than the Brexit vote or the American presidential election.
1: Um, I, I uh, I, First of all, I'm going to ask Roger, do you share that kind of confidence? I mean, the, the prediction markets seem to be leaning in that direction, but not unanimously. And, and this seems very volatile and merc- mercurial. Well, I,
5: yeah, Colin, I'm much less sanguine, really. Um, opinion polls, which were very accurate on the first round, do show at this point uh, Macron getting about 62%, which would be a very... Clear victory, even if it's nothing like the 88% that President Jacques Chirac got against uh, Marine Le Pen's father in, in 2002. But uh, I was in France a couple of weeks ago and reporting, and um, a lot of the left, was, my sense was, Mélenchon and socialists, said to me, um, We're not going to vote utile, vote useful. We're sick of that. We're not going to vote just to prevent Marine Le Pen getting into office. And Macron is intensely pro-European, intensely pro-Euro. In fact, that was one of the bravest stances he took during the campaign, and I admire him for it. But Mélenchon is not, not at all. Um, And this 20% chunk of the vote, he surged in the last 10 days or so. Uh, I don't think it's a given at all um, that a high number of those will, will vote Macron. Uh, I think the right of the Fillon vote, the conservative candidate, François Fillon, could well go to Le Pen. And the fact is that Macron will now be attacked for being a puppet of Hollande. He will be attacked for being, uh, having been an investment banker, having been part of the system. Um, the line of attack from Marine Le Pen on him is, is very clear. Um, now, he's proved extremely adept up to now. And I I hope he will continue to be, but I suspect that the vote in the end will be quite close.
1: Um, I want to ask uh, Jean-Marie a little bit about that, too, because um, obviously it's risky to try to map directly the American dynamic onto the French dynamic. But when I would cover Trump rallies and talk to Trump voters, one of the things that I discovered was, uh, especially during the primary season before the two nominees had been selected here, that often their second favorite candidate was nobody from the Republican field. It wasn't Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio or any of those people. Their second favorite people, uh, of second favorite candidate was Bernie Sanders, who's sort of the Mélenchon of uh, of the American election. Uh, in other words, the people who were supporting Trump on the far right, à la Le Pen, well, their second favorite candidate was the guy on the far left. Is, is any of that, I mean, Roger seems to be suggesting that you know that I mean that, that, um, that word that we were using before, en um, soumise, insou- it kind of means unsubmissive, right? Is there a sense that these rebellious, unsubmissive, far left voters might find some kind of common
4: cause with Le Pen? I think it might be true for uh, a small part of them, yes. Maybe 10%, 15%, 20%. I'm not sure it might be true for much more than that, because there is a huge anti-fascist tradition on the French left, on the French radical and and far left. And it's very difficult for people who vote for Mélenchon to imagine voting for Le Pen. Maybe they will abstain, but they cannot vote for Le Pen because there is really this huge tradition and there is also this huge opposition between um, Mélenchon and Le Pen. For example, a few years ago, Mélenchon uh, said Le Pen was half crazy. It's very, very, uh, their relationship is very, very harsh, I think.
1: Yes. Um, uh, I mean, we should say that um, all of the major candidates from yesterday who didn't uh, make it into the runoff uh, have urged their supporters not to vote for Le Pen and to and therefore vote for Macron. Uh, why don't we take a quick break here? We'll come back with both of these great guests and we'll uh, continue our conversation about the French elections.
2: I want to say to Marine Le Pen, we may have our differences, but semper fi and thank you for your service. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kayone Wolf, with special help from Amanda Poisson and Jonathan Le Pentalon. The part of Bill Curry was played by Jerry Lewis. On tomorrow's show, we explore the connections between genius and geography. And now... Back to Colin.
1: Yes, tomorrow's show will have very much to do with the way that we're, the, with the way people kind of congregate in certain places. In 1913, for example, in Vienna, uh, Freud, Hitler, Lenin, Trotsky, the future, future Marshal Tito uh, were all there frequenting, frequenting the same cafe. Uh, Arnold Schoenberg. Uh, Arnold Schoenberg would then do the scandal concert that year in Vienna, just upending the world of music. Uh, how do all these people wind up in certain places at certain times? That's part of what we'll be talking about uh, tomorrow on the show. Right now, we're talking about the French elections, and we have uh, two very ideal guests: Jean-Marie Potier, uh, editor at large for Slate in France. That's slate.fr, uh, and uh, and a person whose uh, Twitter. Uh, handle or includes a picture of Steve Zissou. I, I can't not love a person who has Steve Zissou uh, as his Twitter picture. Uh, and Roger Cohen, op-ed columnist for the International New York Times, he writes about international affairs uh, and diplomacy. Um, Roger, I'm going to start out with you as we were wrapping up the previous second segment. Uh, Jean-Marie was talking about how on the left, you know, there's a way in which the the, the fascism implicit in in Le Pen's rhetoric is sort of a bridge too far, just a, something that can't be be crossed, no matter how unsubmissive and rebellious uh, a person is feeling on the left. You've also connected some of this phenomenon, though, to what you call the French sense of masochism. Explain what you mean by that.
5: Well, um, I think the um, I think the French live um, a lot better than they acknowledge, and um, it's generally known what's what's wrong with French society. Uh, there's been high unemployment, particularly high youth unemployment, for a very long time now, and that's linked in part to a rigid labor market, and that in turn is linked to the fact that um, there is very comprehensive welfare in France, uh, to which the French are very attached, and nobody really wants to, to break this um, impasse. Um, there's tremendous, I think, of Western developed economies, um, France is a country where there's there are mo- there's most dissatisfaction with uh, the global capitalist system, the way it functions today. But uh, how to reform that is something uh, nobody's really found an effective way to broach. Now, Marine Le Pen says we've got to get rid of the immigrants. We've got to have borders. We've got to throw out the European Union. Um, she's tried to tone down the party's rhetoric, but she's from a xenophobic and racist party that traces its origins back to Vichy. I think Emmanuel Macron, um, he's treading a very fine line because he's trying to, he told me that disruption, modernity equals disruption, and I favor that. That's a radical thing to say in France. He wants to change uh, France and make it more competitive, but he also, I think, has to uh, be careful not to give the French in these last two weeks the impression that he's about to rip up the welfare state.
1: Um, Jean-Marie, I want to ask you a little bit more about Macron and how he presents himself to the French people, who really are just getting to know him. I mean, he has a background in in investment banking, which is uh, I don't know how it plays in France over here. It, it's a tough sell, maybe, ever since two thousand eight uh, politically to be have a background in investment banking. He's got a, kind of a fascinating life too. His wife is twenty five years older than he is, which is kind of a remarkable thing. I mean, do the French have the French gotten to know Macron? Do they know? Who he is? Can they predict uh, what he would be like as a leader?
4: I, I'm not sure we can say uh, that we know who he is or we know what we will what he will do. is still um, well, is still uh, quite unknown for us. But um, regarding what you say, what's interesting is that yes, he was an investment banker, and because he was an investment banker, he tries to well to portray himself uh, as an outsider to 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 fight. Uh, as that, that, that kind of image he kind of, he wants to portray himself as a, as an outsider who will shake the french political system because he has never been elected to any political office so he, well he tries to be the insider outsider it's a kind of uh, strange uh, mm-hmm. behavior sometimes and um, what you mentioned about his private life is also part of uh, this outsider phenomenon because well he's not like the other uh, french politicians he lives with a woman who is 20 or 25 years older than him so for him it's also part of his uh, outsider appeal I will say.
1: Right, and I think she's from a prominent family of chocolatiers, so that might yeah, be. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's it, that's a win, That's a winning trait right there. Yeah. Um, so, um, Roger, and I, I know how you're going to answer this question, but um, you know, one one thing that a candidate like Le Pen can do and or could do is try to try to shake off a little of the taint uh, of of the way that her father campaigned and of the way that she has campaigned in in or in order to get some people to hold their noses and vote. for for her, for whatever reason, um, and I, I'm wondering, to your ears, how successful she's been at that—at toning down any uh, of the the anti-immigrant and, and anti-Semitic taint that that her movement has.
5: I think, Colin, that she has been somewhat successful in doing that—in reducing the excesses and adopting a language um, that less peatonist and more goalist. Um, and um, the results have been, you know, it's a measure of her success that there's a lot of relief uh, that she got 7.8 million votes, um, 2.8 million more than her father uh, ever got in the first round, and um, that she didn't beat Macron in the first round. You know, the national front has moved absolutely from the time when I lived in France in the 90s When they were still kind of taboo, they have moved into the mainstream of French life to the point that it was really accepted that it was almost inevitable that she would be in the second round. And now some people are congratulating themselves uh, that even though the National Front got more than 20% for the first time in history in the French national vote, um, it wasn't quite as bad as expected. That said, um, you know, she just came out and said that. France uh, was not responsible for the deportation to their deaths of 76,000 French Jews during World War II. This matter was settled 20 years ago by President Chirac when he said, yeah, Vichy was France. Vichy wasn't something that descended from another planet. It was France at that time. Uh, She's gone back at that. I was at a rally she was at when, um, she was attacking, uh, uh, well, there were attacks uh, on uh, Macron as being uh, uh, the man of big finance, international finance, and the crowd started chanting Rothschild, 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 which was the bank he worked at. So, uh, you know, it's not even innuendo; it's it's pretty it's pretty much out there. So, yeah, she's she's changed the party somewhat. It's still a party with an ugly past and uh, a pretty ugly present.
1: Um, Jean-Marie, we've only got a couple of minutes left here, uh, if even that. Um, Maybe in a minute, what kind of campaign will happen over the next two weeks? Do you anticipate these two rivals now really attacking one another or just trying to enlarge their bases, trying to pick up however they can uh, the scraps left over from the people who dropped out?
4: Well, I think the campaign will be organized around a a new divide in French politics because the traditional divide in French politics is left against right, but this year you don't have the traditional left or traditional right in the runoff. So there will be, I think, a new organization of the campaign around uh, the the open closed divide. Macron will will try to portray himself as a candidate of the open society of, well, uh, an happy globalization and Le Pen will try to portray herself as um, the representative of the real France Mm. uh, against the European Union, against globalization. So I think uh, they will clash on that and there will be a debate on May the 3rd which will be of course uh, really important and I think Macron will lead a real campaign because I think he will win, but he needs to win br- uh, with a large score. Yeah, he needs right, to win key, with 60% of the vote.
1: Right, and he's got another election coming up after that uh, for seats. And we have to stop right there. What a great guest lineup, Roger Cohen and Jean-Marie Potier. Thank you so much. Thanks to Betsy Kaplan for getting this show together. Uh, and people are going to ask you to support this kind of programming. And so if you love our show, it's the right time to pledge.
2: If Marine Le Pen wins the election, is she going to build a wall? And if so, is Spain going to pay for it? And is it to keep people from coming in to France or to keep them from leaving France?